Welcome to another episode of The Raven Narratives. I'm Tom Yoder. And I'm Sarah Severson, and together we are the co-producers of The Raven Narratives. The story you're about to hear was told by Jeremy Martin at our storytelling events in October at the Sunflower Theater in Cortez and the Durango Arts Center, when the theme was Spooked. Jeremy is a son of the South, but currently calls Monticello, Utah home. He is a former Marine, firefighter, and for the last 10 years or so, a park ranger. He loves exploring Utah's canyon country and the Colorado Rockies with his amazing wife, Kathleen. He can currently be found ranging at Bears Ears National Monument, where he loves to pretend to know what he's doing. Here is Jeremy's story. Move this up to tree ant size. (laughs) So I have seen how the world ends. But we'll get there. (laughs) So I grew up in the South. And as a little kid, I was always the guy that kept playing war when everybody else was ready to play something else. (laughs) Growing up in the South, you know, we build these forts out in the bushes and in the trees outside, but it rains a lot, so it would force the war games indoors. So we'd build forts out of couch cushions and pillows and we'd raid the kitchen and we'd take things like Kool-Aid and snacks and those were the the spoils of war. (laughs) All my friends grew out of that phase pretty quickly and I never quite did. So in June of 2001, I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in the infantry because those were the guys with all the guns. And for the next four years, war wasn't a game anymore. It was real. In 2004, in November of 2004, I found myself as part of the Vanguard unit for the largest urban battle in Marine Corps history called the Second Battle of Fallujah. And then the next summer, 2005, I found myself in a different kind of battle, registering for freshman class at the University of Southern Miss. And that's in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Now that summer I'd been there and hanging out with my friends and reacquainting myself with my old friends from high school. And we'd had a couple of storms blow through. And in the South, we say storms, we mean hurricanes. And we'd had a couple of them come up and, you know, hurricane party, right? That's all there was. And then it was fine. And then at the end of August, there was another one when the skies darkened. And we all knew this one by name. It was called Hurricane Katrina. And we were about 70 miles from the coast in Hattiesburg. And fresh out of the Marine Corps, trying to get into the humdrum life of being a college student, this sounded like the best show in town. So I convinced a couple friends of mine, my best friend Colin, his roommate Nate, I could not convince their other roommate Lance, he he fled. Be like Lance, flee. (laughs) Now, that morning that Katrina made landfall, I was sleeping on their couch because I lived in a one-bedroom apartment and I was really not quite sure about the structural stability of that apartment. So I slept over there. They had a nice 1950s brick house. And I woke up on the couch to the sound of green loblolly pine cones hitting the roof like, like artillery fire. And I got up and we watched as the wind picked up and it really quickly got worse and worse. 
Now, the way their house sat, we had a big yard, but we were right downtown in Hattiesburg, and we were right across the street from where the highway was, Highway 49, that runs from the Mississippi coast and Jackson, which is the path of Hurricane Katrina. So we were, we were there, and our porch actually sat recessed just a little bit. So we could sit on the front porch while all the wind blew over the house and out in front of us. And we were actually able to sit outside and have front row seats for the best show on the planet on the day. So we sat there, college kids, doing what college kids do, having ourselves a little get-together. We quickly realized that that was not a good idea when the trees started to move around. You know, the, the whole storm lasted about six or seven hours, and, and there's real poignant memories that I have of the storm itself, like these big 40-inch loblolly pines shifting around, being blown by the wind, and watching the ground sway and move underneath and thinking, that is not supposed to happen. <laughs> and then they would rip out of the ground, and these six-foot tap roots were showing, and just earth and dirt would come up. I remember the sound of a sort of this banshee howl as a tornado would go ripping through somewhere into all that wind. You know, we're sustaining 80, 90 miles an hour wind with microbursts going more than that. I'm watching my neighbor's roof lift off the house and blow to splinters. And I remember seeing a, a highway sign go down Highway 49 at 100 miles an hour, tumbling end over end like a saw blade, and thinking, what would happen if that actually hit you? We built ourselves a little fort there in the in the hallway of our mattresses because when, when our roof started to give way and a tree came through into our kitchen, we knew that, you know, this was not quite as fun as we had thought it would be. But that, that evening, as it started to get dark, the winds calmed and we were able to go outside and we walked out and all of our neighbors had the same look. We shared this experience. We were survivors. But we were looking at everything, and the devastation of our town was total. You could have walked across Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and never touched the ground, just walking on fallen tree trunks. But everybody started helping each other immediately. It was still raining, and you'd hear chainsaws going as people were cutting branches off each other's houses. And that was kind of a really unique thing to, to see. And in the following couple of days, something else really kind of amazing started happening. We could smell barbecue. We didn't have any power, we didn't have any water, there was no cell phones, and everybody's food is going bad. So imagine 20,000 people grilling, <laughs> and you're welcome everywhere, because there's more food than you'll ever eat. And we ate like kings, roving bands of post-apocalyptic kings. <laughs> After that first week, people started walking down the highway, coming up from the Gulf Coast, and they were telling us that New Orleans was gone. And we didn't know that. You know, New Orleans didn't even take a hit. We thought, yeah, whatever, just rumors. But there was no emergency services. If a house caught fire, a house burnt down. And we started hearing about people getting robbed. And people's resources that we're so used to here in America, like turning your faucet on and being able to take a drink, doesn't happen. And there were no news of it coming. There were no relief trucks, no Red Cross. Everybody was going to the coast, and they were going to New Orleans. And we were caught in this in-between. And we started to hear gunfire at night that second week as neighbors started killing each other over generators, bags of ice, little things that now become very big things. So fresh out of the Marines, I uh, 
I was pretty well suited for this environment. I probably suffered the least because I knew what I needed to do. Dug a latrine in the yard. We armed ourselves, our little band of three, and we started raiding. We'd find a convenience store that had collapsed, and in we would go, taking our book bags that we should have been using in college and filling them up full of supplies that we needed, like water, snacks, Pop-Tarts being the uh, number one staple in an emergency. Hoard Pop-Tarts, if you ever find yourself in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> and we'd take them. Now I was kind of splitting my time because crime was on the rise, and you really had to look out for yourself, so I'd split my time between my friend's house and my apartment, which the second floor roof did actually blow off on it. And I'd pull this really amazingly cheap couch that I had. I paid maybe 50 bucks for this pleather, the color of, I'd probably say baby poop. (laughs) Pull it up next to the screen door that every single bedroom college apartment has with the cheap plastic blinds. And I would lay there in my boxers and sweat in the Mississippi heat. And I'd always sleep there with a loaded 12-gauge John Daly shotgun leaning up against the doorframe. And this one night, something woke me up. It was the sound of someone, someone's footsteps on the concrete about three feet away from where I was. I left the door open, and there was no screen. And so I parted those blinds just a little bit and looked out, and there was a kid about my age standing there. And he was looking up and down the road, and then he was looking back at me. He didn't see me in the dark, but he saw the open door, and I knew this guy was coming in here, and he was going to step right on me. And I reached over and I grabbed that shotgun, and I could feel the blood pulsing through my ears, and my ears have always rang ever since I came back from Iraq, and they were screaming, and it was like reaching through thick mud. And somewhere way back in my mind is a little voice telling me, don't do this, don't do this, but I was terrified at what I was going to do. I took that shotgun and I slid it through the blinds and I pointed it right at the back of this kid's head. And I said, the first thing that came to mind, I said, hey, not hey, just hey. (laughs) Like we should have been passing each other in college in in a classroom somewhere. And he turned and he looked and it dawned on him what, what he was looking at. And he said what came natural to him, given that circumstance. He said, ah, and he took off running. And I did the exact same thing the other way. But I had all these cheap plastic pleather couch cushions stuck to me because of all the adrenaline and the sweat. And I dove over the back of the couch. And I stood there in my own living room, holding a real gun, guarding a couch cushion fort from another kid trying to steal Pop-Tarts. And I realized that that is how the world ends. Thanks. Thank you, Jeremy, for sharing your story. We are scheduling our 2020 events and themes soon, so be sure to check out the events page in January and make plans to be there. And consider telling your story. To pitch your story for future Raven narratives, fill out the contact form on our website 
at ravennarratives.org. Subscribe to the Raven Narratives podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and share these stories with your friends. If a particular story made you laugh, cry, or look at your world with a little bit more clarity, please leave a comment and let us know. Thanks to photographer Jody Jarling of Wild Blue Bug Photography, who took the onstage portraits of our storytellers for the spooked events. Find out more about Jody's photography services on her website at wildbluebug.com. And thanks to our fiscal nonprofit sponsor, Mancus Valley Resources. Find out more about all the wonderful projects they support in the Mancus Valley of Colorado at mancusvalleyresources.com. The website for buying Raven Narratives tickets, ravennarrativestickets.org, was created by Cortez Web Services. Find out how they can help your business online at cortezweb.com. Our theme music was written and composed by Mo Cooley and performed by Mo and the Motones. Find out more about their music on the Motones Facebook page. That's M-O-E Tones on Facebook.